You know the song, yeah? Soon and very soon we are... No, I won't sing it. You know the song, yeah? Yeah. My poor wife has had to hear me sing this around over the past few months. It's just, I, I don't even know the rest of the verses. I just know that refrain. Soon and very soon we're going to see the king. Soon and very soon we're going to sing, see the king. Hallelujah, hallelujah. We're going to see the king. And it's, I, I, um, I think I saw a particular version of it on a YouTube clip and the song's just stuck there, that refrain has stuck there and I keep singing it around the house and I'm considering it a word from God. Uh, n- not that I've been given any diagnosis of some kind that tells me that I'm going to see the king very soon but, but, but th- there is something in my heart in recent times that, that has led me to have a certain urgency. Um, and this urgency that I have, I know that I've felt it at other times and it comes from a wrong place at times. There's an urgency Christians can have and it stems from a place of fear. And when we feel that sense of urgency, we feel like we've got to do something, we've got to fix it, we've got to do something about this right now and it comes from an ungodly place. But there is another kind of urgency that's more akin to passion, and passion in the best possible sense. There's a sense that this is important, this matters, and I must move. And I must move now in the direction that's right to go in. It's not, it doesn't come from a place of fear. Our passage today, I hope, brings us to that place. That place where we feel that passion This is a word actually of encouragement and of comfort. Time and time again when we come to passages like this, passages that are, let's be clear, this is a passage of warning. This is a passage of judgment. But so many times I've heard passages of judgment spoken from a place of fear. Like It's like fear is what we're trying to use to motivate people. And the church has been guilty at times of preaching texts like this, I think sometimes out of context and sometimes out of an own sense of fear. How do I get people to move? And yet when I hear this text and when we listen carefully, we'll see that Jesus is actually speaking words of comfort to his disciples. Words that ought to cause us to feel a sense of passion and a good godly urgency and also to be comforted so that that urgency comes almost from a place of rest. And that might sound like two contradictory ideas. How can we be talking about urgency and a place of rest? And yet these words are words of comfort that give us a sense of rest that enable us to get up and do the things that God has called us to do. Um... Some of the caricatures we have of passages of judgment, um, some of you might know the movie Bruce Almighty. Um, the main character feels like life is against him, God is against him, um, and there's a certain point where he crashes the car, 
And then he looks up to the sky and says, the gloves are off, pal. Smite me, almighty smiter. You know that line? <laughs> and that's the picture people have of God and judgment. The wrath of God. God's waiting to just judge people. I found it helpful over the years, um, listening to Andrew's description, that judgment is truth. Truth unfolding, truth revealed. I put my hand in the fire, it's going to get burned. What do I say? God created the fire, therefore God burnt me? Or do I say that I've ignored what fire is and the reality of it? Fire cooks food, fire is good for warmth in, in the fireplace, it's good in its right place, isn't it? But I can't ignore the reality of what it is. And judgment is like that. It's, it's truth unveiled, unfolding, revealed. And we've had some unhelpful ideas. Um, the literature, part of, at least a part of what we're reading today, almost has that genre and sense of the apocalyptic. I don't know if you've heard of the apocalyptic literature. Um, uh, apocalypsis uh, in Greek, is, it just means revelation or unveiling. That's where we get the word or the book, the name of the book of revelation from. Apocalypsis. Revelation. And this apocalyptic literature, um, you'll think of books like the second half of Daniel and the book of Revelation. The language is evocative and the images are vivid, intentionally, to make a point. And people that would have heard this in, in its original context might have understood very quickly, oh, that's, that's a genre. We understand it in arts, don't we? We give artists great licence, don't we? We don't look at something and go, well, that, that's not what a tree looks like. Well, actually, that might not be what they were trying to... They, they might not have been trying to paint a very realistic tree. Music, all sorts of literature. We can use very evocative, powerful imagery. Right at the end, what does Jesus say? He says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. Very evocative. We'll look at what, what he's talking about when we get there. When Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off, does he really want us to cut off his hand? Our hands? Or, or is he saying sin's really serious? Treat it seriously. Is he using evocative language? And so sometimes we've misread at times texts, and, and particularly when it comes to the end times. Um, so much of what I think is here says that we don't actually know exactly what it's going to look like. There are some things that we can maybe speak about with certain confidence. But to go out and have a full-blown view of exactly what it's going to look like. So we had a part of our passage where some people might use that to talk about the rapture. They'll take some passages from Thessalonians, the book of Revelation, and they'll have a very full-blown view of what it'll look like. If you haven't heard of that idea of the rapture, that Jesus will come and those that are believers will go to be with him and some are left behind. Those that are left behind might suffer. And then this morning I heard that, yes, some people have heard the reverse of that. Maybe it's um, uh, the unbelievers that are taken away. Now, if I thought that was quite what the text was saying, maybe the application could be today. We'll consider today how many toilet rolls we might need if we are left behind. <laughs> but I don't think, I don't think, I don't think... That's how we're supposed to read this. I think it's, again, an evocative picture. 
This idea of a distinctness, separation. So let's look at this passage. Let's try to hear it as the first readers might have heard it. And so um, there are two parts to it. The first part's small, where Jesus is actually responding to the Pharisees. And after that, he turns to the disciples with some words of comfort. And so where do the Pharisees start? They say, um, when the kingdom of God comes, they're asking him um, what it will be like when the kingdom of God comes. And Jesus replied, um, the, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In one sense, I'm almost tempted to say, oh, that's not really fair of Jesus, because in so many other places, he actually suggests it can be something you can see, and he actually points to the signs and things, you know, well, who do you think that I am? <laughs> and, and if you remember, John the Baptist is in prison, um, uh, probably not realising he's about to uh, face his execution, uh, but sends off some disciples, uh, some of his disciples, to go to Jesus to ask, are you the one? Or should we expect another? And what does Jesus say? Jesus says, well, go back to John and tell him what you see. The blind see, the deaf hear, the lame walk, lepers are healed. You'd think that maybe the kingdom can be observed. What does Jesus mean by saying the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed, nor will people say here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. What does he mean when clearly Jesus himself has pointed to things? See, I think that the substance of the kingdom is different to the outworkings and the things that are evidenced by the substance of the kingdom. What do I mean? I mean that um, Jesus himself says, if I quoted the full part of what he told um, John the Baptist's disciples, he said, um, and may no one stumble on account of me. That was the point. John the Baptist wanted to know if Jesus was the one. Is he the one that marks the coming of the kingdom? And then Jesus pointed out those other things, but the issue was about who, not when. So the Pharisees asked the question of when. We often have questions ourselves. We have questions that we want answered But sometimes when we're so fixated on our own questions, we miss the point that Jesus is making. And the point that the Pharisees might be missing is standing in their very midst. They want to know when. They should be asking who. They're missing the kingdom of God in their very midst. There can be miracles. There can be healings. It's not the substance of the kingdom, though. I mean, we can look at the very passage before this, yeah, we've missed it in our readings. It's the healing of the ten lepers. Ten are healed. One comes back. And Jesus says, only one? Only one, a foreigner, comes back to praise God? And he says to him, um, he said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. Your faith has made you well. I thought ten were made well. Jesus speaks these words to this man, rise, your faith has made you well. Ten were healed bodily. A miracle took place. One has taken hold of the kingdom or the kingdom has taken hold of them. Why? Because they see Jesus. 
Um, next slide, uh, my phone's telling me I've lost control. <laughs> Jesus is the substance of the kingdom of God. Jesus is the substance. One leper took hold of the one who healed. The others were excited about their healing. The Pharisees want to know what to look for when the kingdom comes and it's right there before them in their midst. After Jesus makes this point, and this is connected to why this is a word of comfort, keep your eyes fixed on Jesus in this passage. So I keep going to move. I'm going to move to the next slide. (laughs) Um, So Jesus then turns to the disciples And he gives them these words of comfort. And so the first thing he says in verses 22 to 24 is that he says, uh, the time is coming when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, a reference he uses about himself, the Son of Man. But you will not see it. People will tell you he he is there, or there there he is, or here he is. Do not go running after them, for the Son of Man in his day will be like lightning, which flashes and lights up the sky from one end to the other. So when Jesus comes... You'll long for his day. He's telling his disciples, you'll long for it. But when he comes, it'll be like lightning. Um, It'll be unmissable. And so maybe as he's talking to the Pharisees, maybe this kingdom can be unperceptible. Sometimes we are so fixed with our own agendas, with our own sense of what matters to us, we miss the reality of things. We miss things as they really are. We miss God. We miss Jesus. But it's saying that at his second coming, there will be nobody missing it. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. At the second coming, it will be unmissable. That's his first point. This is a word of comfort. His second point um, in verses 26 to 30, um, he uses two examples from our historical narrative. Uh, We have the story of Noah and we have the story of Lot. I won't go into them, but they're stories of judgment. And in those stories, what's happening? Well, just the everyday normal things are happening. People are eating, drinking, marrying and being given in marriage all up until the day Noah entered the ark. And then in Lot's time, um, it says um, people were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building, buying their sixth or seventh investment property. Whatever they're doing, I don't know. Whatever they think they need, I'm not sure. But they will be doing the things that they think are most important. And they will not expect. And they will not be looking for God's coming. This again is a word of comfort. We'll come back to it. Uh, Verses 31 to 33. Um, On that day, no one who is on the housetop with possessions inside should go down and get them. Likewise, no one in the field should go back for anything. Remember Lot's wife. The story of Lot's wife is as um, Lot and his family were being saved from some uh, cities that were about to be destroyed, they were told not to look back. The idea of looking back is to say, I would rather that than what I'm being saved to. I'd rather have that. So the idea of Lot's wife looking back is saying that's where her heart is. So whoever tries to keep their life will lose it and whoever loses their life will preserve it. The point of these words are to say that at the second coming, 
This will reveal where one's life is truly hidden. What matters to us? What are we about? What has driven us? What do we care about? And in verses 34 to 35, this is the parts that some people might refer to as or think might be speaking of the rapture. I don't think so. I think it's just evocative language. I will tell you on that night, two people will be in, um, in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding grain together, one will be taken, the other left. I think it's just talking about um, the fact that at Jesus' second coming, it'll make the distinction very clear. It's very evocative, isn't it? One taken, one left. The distinction will be clear. It'll be a real revealing. There is some parts of the idea of judgment that I can't take the sting out of. There are some parts I want to try to remedy in that, as I said, I think sometimes ideas of judgment have been used in unhelpful ways, leads people to sit there focusing on almost doubting the goodness and love of God. And we have these very fixed ideas of what the end will be like or what everlasting life will be like. Uh, if I were to share some of my thoughts, I, I put these, some of these thoughts in, a, in what we call secondary, a secondary category. We have our primary issues. These are the things that hold us to the, as, together as Christians. And then we have secondary matters that we might debate about, argue about. And these are the things that sometimes I think Scripture aren't absolutely clear on. Jesus is God. Jesus did really die and he did really rise from the dead. God has revealed himself as Father, Son, Holy Spirit. These are things we hold to. These are the primary matters of faith. And then we have secondary issues. And some of, some of those secondary issues, I think, can sometimes affect what kind of life we live as a Christian. Some Christians, because of passages around judgment, have lived with a lack of assurance. And God wants his people to live an assured life. That they're, they're, they're safe. And then there's ideas sometimes we worry about those we love. And, we, and people have heard ideas around, you know, eternal damnation or eternal suffering. People might not like some of my thoughts. These fall into a secondary idea for me, but I'm not sure I hold to it eternal damnation. I think there is an end. I think there is a real judgment. If God is the source of life and all things that exist exist because of him, things that are apart from him, I feel cannot continue to exist. But I do think there is a real judgment. And then in the final verse, verse 37, it says, um, where there is a dead body there, the vultures will gather. And this is um, in response to the disciples' question, where, Lord? Where, Lord, will this take place? The Pharisees asked when. The disciples asked where. Um, and Jesus, in his very usual self, 
uh, kind of answers but doesn't. Um, so he says, where there is a dead body, there the vultures will gather. And it's not too unusual maybe for people in that time who were very tied to geographical locations and places. They were given the land. Where, where will this final end take place? Where will it happen? It's not an unusual or out there question. But like many times, when Jesus sometimes responds to us, our questions are here. We want to know these details. And when we are so fixated on our own questions, we miss what God's trying to show us and reveal to us. And so Jesus is revealing a whole host of things, maybe not according to what we want or what we think. In um, Acts chapter 1, uh, tells the story of Jesus appearing to the disciples for 40 days. 40 days after his resurrection. And in that time, he was giving them convincing proofs that he was alive. And it says he was, what, what was he doing? Teaching them about the kingdom of God. That's what it says he was doing in that time. Teaching them about the kingdom of God. Their first question to him is, when will you restore the kingdom to Israel? He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. They're asking about when will you restore? Is this the time? He says, it's not for you to know the times that the Father has set. For you, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He doesn't answer their question, but he does. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. They're asking about the kingdom of Israel. He pushes their vision out. You'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's been teaching them about the kingdom of God. Our questions are not always the ones that God answers, but he is speaking to us and he is giving us revelation. And in this, he's saying, judgment, yes, there is a finality to it. And these are all words of comfort. In some ways, it might not feel like comfort, especially if sometimes, we all know the iceberg analogy, you guys see me standing here preaching, I must be a good holy person, but you don't see everything underneath, you don't see the iceberg, you don't see the things I struggle with or or the hypocrisy or, or other things. And so maybe on the day of judgment, do I fear, do I worry? Many Christians lack assurance in the face of judgment. For many years I went on as a Christian lacking assurance. But God doesn't want that for his people. And, and that idea of finality, that, that there will be a judgment, is also a comfort in that there is suffering that we longed that that would stop. There is injustice that we want stopped. There are things that are wrong. There's a brokenness in life and in ourselves, that we want to come to an end. We want to reach the fulfilment, God's end. But maybe there's still that hint or worry for some people. I long for healing in my whole being and for an end to suffering, but what if on that day I'm found not worthy and deserving of death? Sometimes there is that fear and worry I skipped over verse 25 in this passage because that's where I just want to sit, just take our eyes towards it. You see, in the midst of this judgment passage, there's Jesus again. He's right there in the midst of it. And he says, 
so after he's told the disciples, when the Son of Man does come, um, when the Son of Man does come, uh, it'll be like lightning. He, he then says to them, but first, before this happens, but first, he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. If we fixate, fixate on what we don't absolutely know, I, I don't know exactly everything about the end times. I know there are some things that are certain. And we miss that a judgment has already taken place. Let me try and say this as clearly as I can. God has already judged you. When you look at the cross, God has already judged you. Apart from God, you are not worthy. You are deserving of death. But you are not apart from God. He loves you. So he faced your judgment. It's as though my hand's in the fire and Jesus' hand is burning and mine is okay. On the cross, you and I were judged. God's love was made certain, if ever it was. You are a unique expression of the glory of God. Do you understand what I mean? Each one of you is a unique expression of the glory of God. God wants that to go on forever. And so he judged you on the cross to make a way so that the unique expression that you are would go on forever if you would turn to him. If you would see him. If you would take hold, look hold, turn your eyes to him. Right here in the passage it says, he tells us what's happened. He says judgment's already taken place. God judged you and he said, I love you. So I will take your death. I will take your suffering so you can go free. So the unique expression of my glory that I've placed in you can go on. Receive it. Turn to me. Look to me. Receive me. Um, next slide. Thanks, Gary. Jesus' kingdom revelation is comfort. He is our comfort. He's the comfort in all of this. When he comes back, it'll be unmissable. I'm so glad for that. In a world which might tell me that I'm ridiculous, my interests are ridiculous, my time and energy, my money, it's misused... When Jesus returns, I, I know I'll be looking forward to that day. Others might not be looking forward to it, but God's people will be. And then it will be revealed that my, that my work in the Lord wasn't in vain. Your work in the Lord wasn't in vain. You chose well. The distinction will be clear and it will be final. These are words of comfort. In Psalm 34, verses 4 to 5, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. 
we're encouraged. I'm going to invite the band up. We're encouraged to look to him. We're encouraged to turn to him. Judgment has come. It happened on the cross so that you and I can live free, boldly, courageously, looking forward to Jesus' coming again, knowing that when we look to the cross, we do see a God of great love and compassion. Rise up, church, and turn your face towards Jesus.